observations in this podcast are made in a personal capacity and we're expressing personal views by way of legal commentary. While every effort is made to ensure that the contents of each episode are accurate, none of the contents of any episode of Professionally Embarrassing are intended to be a substitute for legal advice. No liability is accepted for any error or omission within any episode. Embarrassing, your fortnightly family law podcast hosted by me, Malika, and me, Maddie. I can't even remember how to do the introduction because I'm so tired. <laughs> Welcome everyone to our pupillage application special we're very sorry we're recording at the obscene time of 9 15 a.m on a sunday morning and neither of us are particularly on top form oh for goodness sake i didn't even turn off my notifications that's the state we're in right now but we are very excited to have a special episode lined up for all our listeners today it's an episode that has been requested. It's not something that we did last year. And it's a pupillage application special. And we know that there are lots of people at the moment at the family bar offering their pearls of wisdom. So we thought we'd throw our hats in the ring as well. We have already done an Instagram live about applying for pupillage towards the end of last year, just after Christmas. So if you do want to have a look at that, that is on our Instagram page and it's been saved in our, whatever it's called, Insta videos. Insta TV. So have a look at that because that might answer some of the questions we might not get to in this episode. But hopefully you'll find it helpful. Just a disclaimer that our advice is very much our personal advice. It's completely independent of our chambers. Neither of us sit on pupillage interview committees. And so it's just effectively us sharing our experiences and what we think from what we've learned during the process. So take it with a pinch of salt, exercise your judgment, obviously. And let's get cracking, Maddie. Do you have anything else to add to the intro? No, I would emphasise again that neither of us represent necessarily the specific views of our chambers when it comes to pupillage. It's more a collection of the wisdom that we've acquired over the years. And we are fairly recently out of the process, I think within the last five years for both of us. So bear in mind that some things may have changed since we were involved in the process. So the first question I've got written down is, how did you find the pupillage application process? My view on this and answer to this question has changed over the years because at the time I remember feeling like nothing else in the world mattered and it was the most important thing I'd ever do and it would define my entire life. Looking back on it, I feel embarrassed that I felt that way about it, but I did at the time and I think I remember feeling very overwhelmed by the sheer volume of what was expected of me, the number of answers, the number of questions. I ended up applying to about 27 or 28 sets of chambers, which in hindsight is a huge number. But I also applied to criminal chambers, civil chambers, obviously family chambers and public chambers, all sorts. So I was basically throwing everything at the wall and seeing what stuck. And I think because of that decision, I was very overwhelmed by the process and I found it very intense. And there was lots of information that was demanded of me. And I also think for that reason, I was probably quite underprepared <laughs> for the process. And looking back, I think I would have said to do slightly less than that and prepare better. And I also went to a number of sort of criminal and civil interviews where they said, look, you did your dissertation in family law. 
you do all your mini PhDs in family law, you write about family law all the time, why are you here? <laughs> and I think that was probably very good points as well. So I found it very overwhelming because of the sheer numbers of applications I made and also because it's that feels like at the time like it's going to define your entire existence and whilst it did really you know it's part of my job and it is, it is my life now I'm not sure that that was the most sensible way to feel about it because I think it made it feel even more overwhelming how did you find it I mean I thought it was horrible and actually I had a relatively easy ride of it in comparison to most people so unlike Maddie I didn't apply at my earliest opportunity which was my final year of my degree because I just didn't feel prepared and I think the first tip I'd give to anyone is don't just go I'm just going to give it a go I think wait until you feel like you have the time and energy to commit to pupillage applications so that you're making well-constructed applications that actually give you a chance of getting pupillage rather than just having a go and then you'll see what happens the following year so I didn't do the application my final year of law school I waited until the bar course and actually, I had a relatively easy time of it, maybe because I did not apply to as many chambers as Maddie did. I was just looking at my spreadsheet, and I think I've applied for about 13. And most of them were specialist family pupillages, which made my life a lot easier because my answers were very focused and, and very tailored to family law, rather than having to think of lots of new things to say for different types of chambers and having to look at all the things that all the different types of chambers might be interested in. I think having that slightly focused approach, even though it gave me fewer opportunities on the numbers, did make my applications more focused. Um, and like I said, I had a relatively easy time in comparison to a, a lot of my friends. I think I got first rounds at most places and quite a few second rounds. But I think that I was so focused on the application process and on getting pupillage that I really stressed myself out with the bar course because I was really underprepared for my exams. And I remember going into my final exams at bar school, civil litigation or whatever, and just thinking, well, wow, it's great. I've got a pupillage offer now, but now I'm really worried I'm going to fail my exams. So time management is really important because especially if you were like me and you weren't in the geographic area where you were applying to most places and you have to travel up and down, it's a huge time commitment and you have to make sure that you are prepared from the off if you're doing the bar course as well. It's not, you know, I'm a very last minute worker. I'm a kind of cram it at the end and hope for the best sort of person, which was not an approach that worked for me during bar school and made the whole process more stressful than it needed to be. But by and large, it was, it was okay. What I would say is I've not got the world's thickest skin and I think if I hadn't got pupillage I'm not sure if I would have carried that process on for years and years and years I just think that it would have been quite damaging to my self-esteem and my mental health already was not great at that point and I was really struggling so I think assess what your priorities are and if you think that continuously putting yourself through the process is going to affect your well-being like Maddie says, it's not the end of the world, even though it feels like it. And there are more important things like your health. So if you want to take a year out or if you think, actually, I don't want to put my life on hold trying to look for pupillage. I want to do something else because this process is not doing anything for me. Fair enough. It is a job at the end of the day. It's a job that you may not even end up liking once you get it. So just think of it like that. It's not the end of the world. Yeah, and one thing I would say as well, picking up on that, and I say this every time we talk about pupillage, Malcolm's sick of hearing me say it, but I applied to pupillage when I was 21 or 20, the last year of university, and I started pupillage when I was 22. And in hindsight, that was a mistake 
I think if I could go back and do it differently, I would have waited a couple of years, done something slightly different, probably focused and filtered my applications better than I did ultimately. Obviously it worked out. I did get pupillage first time round, but that was probably a numbers game because I applied to so many places. But in hindsight, if I could go back and do anything differently, I would have taken a couple of years after university, worked for, I don't know, a local authority or for some sort of charity or children or something like that. So that I had a better understanding of the kind of work I wanted to do when I got to the family bar and a better understanding of families and the way they worked and slightly more maturity because I was very young. I'd just come out of university. I went to Cambridge, which is a very self-indulgent university where I was allowed to do whatever I basically wanted all the time and be told I was brilliant. So that really didn't help, I think, as an attitude going in. And at the time, I remember thinking, if I don't do it when I'm young, you know, it's not worth doing. Everyone's going to think I'm a failure. If I don't do it now, I needed to get it done as quickly as possible. And actually, that was a really silly way to think. And some of the best barristers that I know came to the bar at 30, 31. And that's still extremely young, by the way, as someone who has a looming birthday. That's very young. But yeah, it does. It does make a difference, actually, having a little bit of life experience, especially if you want to do family law. I think if you want to do something different, maybe I would give different advice. But family law particularly, there's no there's not no such thing as too much life experience when it comes to family, I think. Yeah, I was speaking to someone yesterday and they were telling me about how much pressure there is from their peers who feel like they need to follow this linear path of university training job and it's all set out a perfect schedule for them and they felt a lot of pressure because they had different priorities and maybe wanted to do slightly different things that's okay there's no ticking clock on when you can become a barrister and don't feel pressured by what everyone else is doing because we all work on our own time scale so second question that I've written down how did you prepare for pupillage interviews? So at the time that I was doing pupillage applications, the window was slightly different in terms of when it was in the year. So I don't know if it was like this for you, but it was May to August, I think, was when we did ours. Opened in May, decisions in August. Was it? Or decisions in May? It wasn't like that for me. I think I got oh. my offer in May. Fine. So I think I was the last year where, because it was the 1st of August that I got my pupillage. I remember that. So the window was slightly later in the year. So at the time I was doing my university finals <laughs> and applying for pupillage. And I think one of the things that really helped actually was that I was doing my finals and I was constantly reading about law and about changes in the law and about new ideas and new shifting laws at the time in lots of different areas. So I was doing EU and equity and all that kind of stuff in my third year, which feeds into family directly. And so I did do a lot of legal preparation. I was interested in what was new on the family law scene, what were people talking about, what had recently happened, what were the new cases, and so on. And I and I had access to them because I was at university. I know that's not possible for everyone, but I think one of the best things you can do is know your area. So what are family barristers talking about? What's hot on the ground? What are the new things that are happening that year? You know, this year you've got no fault divorce. That's a big issue that's definitely going to come up in pupillage interviews, I guarantee it. That kind of thing. And so legal preparation, I think, is really important. And secondly, know your set, because it's very easy to confuse, you know, family law chambers into one homogenous glob. We're not, we're different and we're separate and we have different ideas and different motivations and different people. Knowing the sets that ask you for interview is really important. What are their recent cases? What do their juniors do? What do their QCs do? What do their you know, middle people do? How many clerks do they have? What's the tagline on their website? What do they put on their website? What don't they put on their website? All that kind of thing, because they will want to know that you know them as much as they want to know you. And that's really good preparation. And that's only just perusing the website. They're not going to give you any more information than that. And bear in mind that websites are marketing tools. Obviously, not all the information about Chambers is going to be on the website. But 
it's interesting to see what their junior profiles are like. You know, where do their juniors go to university? What kind of cases are they doing? Are they doing lead briefs? Are they doing their own briefs? What kind of final hearings are they doing? All that kind of stuff. So that you have an idea about what your practice is going to look like if you were taken on there, because they'll want to know that you think about that and, and see yourself there would be my view. Yeah, I mean, I was very prepared for pupillage interviews, but I will say that there's only so much preparation you can do. There are just some things you can't anticipate. I just Googled kind of typical pupillage questions. And then I wrote down my answers to everything I could possibly think of, all the competency questions that you might struggle with on the spot, like tell us about a time that you faced an ethical dilemma. Now, I was 21, 22 when I was applying. I had very few ethical dilemmas in my life at that point. I would have really struggled on the spot. So I was thinking about it in advance. What would I say to that sort of thing? And I wrote out my answers and I structured them and I practiced delivering them so that they didn't sound rehearsed. Um, and I, I made sure that I knew everything as much as I could inside out. I also, whenever I was looking at current legal issues, I wasn't just reading about them. I was thinking about what I actually thought about them. So at the time, Owens and Owens had just come out and no fault divorce and whether or not Tinny Owens should have been granted a divorce was a very hot topic. So I sat there and I wrote out, should Dini Owens have been granted a divorce? And then I wrote out what I actually thought about it. And then I thought about the opposite as well, because I was inevitably going to be challenged on it. So those are things that I did that I found helpful. Also, after every single interview, I came out and then I wrote down all the questions that I had been asked. The reason I did that is if I wasn't successful that year, then the following year, that would be helpful for me to look back on. But also it was helpful for me that same year because then I would think about my answers post interview. And if something similar came up in a later interview, then I had something a bit better than what I came up with in that first interview. What else did I do? I think that, as I said, there's only a certain amount of preparation you can do because in my very first interview, it was 10 minutes long. There was a panel of seven. And my last question was something like, you're trapped in a lift with Donald Trump and you have a minute to persuade him of something, go. I wasn't ever going to think about that before going into the pupillage interview. There's no way I could have prepared for that. And you will get quirky questions like that. And I think my best piece of advice for those is, I don't even feel like the answer matters that much so much as how you deal with it, because I don't think my answer was that great, but I didn't allow it to fluster me. I treated it as any other question that I had been asked. And my personal view is I think those questions are tailored to see whether they can catch you off guard, whether they can fluster you, whether they can make you panic, um, or whether you just deal with it as another question. So you will get some quirky questions like that. Have fun with them. Um, they are quite funny. Being asked that question was quite funny. Yeah, to stay on top of things, subscribe to lots of blogs. I was reading Family Law, L-O-R-E, quite a lot, Family Law Week. There are so many resources, including this very podcast, that you should be making use of to know what's going on in the family law sphere. Go on Twitter and see what people are talking about. Exercise judgment when using Twitter, especially during pupillage applications, because people are reading your Twitter profile. So don't go slagging off various chambers and being like, this chamber's rejected me by silence and I'm never going to apply to them again. Doesn't reflect well on you. Wait until you become a tenant before you start <laughs> writing salty tweets. Yeah, I think that's probably my tips for preparing. Yeah, I would say as well, I think one of the things that you mentioned is don't underestimate the value of breathing because I would forget to breathe in my pupillage interviews and then leave and suddenly have some sort of panic attack because I hadn't breathed in about 10 minutes. 
And if someone asks you a question that you're not expecting, like Malvika's Donald Trump example, and I had one actually, one of the <laughs> one of the first pupillage interviews I did, they asked me, what Disney character would you be and why? And it's just not something I'd even thought about. And I just, it just knocked me totally for six. And I literally had to stop and breathe in and breathe out. And it really helped. And it was, I felt like it was ages that I was waiting to answer. It wasn't, it was probably about four seconds, but it really helped to sort of ground me and center me. And I think I'd really recommend do not let these people intimidate you. If you've prepared properly, all they want to do is see you shine. They don't want to see you flustered and upset and distressed. They want to see you do well. So do not let the process intimidate you. It's just a job. You will be fine. And if someone asks you a question that you don't know the answer to, take a deep breath and have a think and buy yourself a little bit of time, have a sip of water, whatever it is, all the things that we do in court now to buy ourselves time when we don't know the answer to something have a sip of water, have a deep breath, and you will get there. And that's part of the test is that they're testing you on how you would perform if you were a barrister. So it's worth preparing as if you were a barrister. Yeah, a couple of practical tips that I can also think of, which I gave at a different talk this week, is in terms of ethical problems, because some sets will tell you an ethical dilemma, as if you were at court or your client has said something, how would you respond to it? I found those questions manageable because I was on the bar course at the time and I was studying ethics. Of course, some applicants haven't done the bar course by the time that they are applying. So what I'd suggest is get a hold of one of the ethics practical guides if you can, and also read the core duties, the barrister's core duties, and know them off by heart. And look at all the guidance if you can. Um, The BSB handbook is actually very helpful. And when you're addressing an ethical problem, start first by thinking which core duties are actually engaged and then start balancing those duties against each other. And that's a good starting point when you're dealing with an ethical question. And the other thing I was going to say is that you will be asked technical questions sometimes that you won't know the answer to, especially if you've never done family law, if you've never done law, don't worry about it. Particularly at first round interviews, I think chambers are looking more to explore how you think around things rather than what you know about the technicalities of the law. Obviously, at second round, a lot of places give you problem questions and you're expected to do your research and you're expected to know the law that they're asking you about. But as an example, at one of my first round interviews at a money set, I was asked, are joint lives maintenance orders a meal ticket for life? And I didn't even know. I don't know the audacity I had to go into a money set not even knowing what a joint lives maintenance order is. And I just asked the panel, what's a joint lives maintenance order and they just explained it to me and once they'd explained it to me I just gave them my answer off the basis on the basis of what they'd explained to me and it must have gone well because I had an offer for second round by the time I got back to the train station and that's fine you will be asked things sometimes that you will not know what it is there's only so much preparation you can do just ask don't try and hazard a guess to something you have no idea about because you're going to come off looking sillier doing that. So next question, how did you bounce back from rejection or from a bad pupillage interview? Okay, so one of my most vivid memories, which I think will stay with me for life, is my first pupillage rejection. And the rejections come first. They don't come second because they come first in time and the interviews come after. So you get all of your rejections normally, pre-interview rejections first, and it's horrible. And I remember exactly where I was, I was standing outside the library at university and I called my mum and I cried down the phone and I said, I'm never going to be a barrister when I got my first rejection. That is genuinely a true story. How embarrassing is that? But after that, I remember her saying to me on the phone, she was like, you need to stop pinning your entire identity on this thing. It's not about you. They don't know you. They've not met you. It's not about you. 
And I think that was very helpful that I was I was taking it so personally because I was I was young, you know, and I was desperate to do this job. And I thought it was about me. I was like, I've done something wrong. You know, I've, I've messed up. What the hell am I thinking, thinking I can do this? This is awful. You know, I'm never going to succeed, etc. the whole thing. And actually the pre-interview rejections, they've read your application probably once and they've had a look at certain things. So certain sets want people with masters, certain sets give people more points for being on the bar course or whatever it might be, random arbitrary things that I didn't have at that time. And they rejected me. And that's fine because they didn't know me. It wasn't about what I'd written in my application, I'm sure, because they read so many. I mean, even my chambers, which is small, gets over 300 applications a year. That's a huge amount of reading to do. Huge amount of young people desperate to do this job who are keen and clever, but you just can't take them all on. So you've got to be filter and you've got to be, you know, harsh, really. You've got to separate people as early as you can. And that's what happened, you know, to lots of people and to me early on with lots of sets. And it's it's going to happen. You're never, ever, ever going to win them all. Why would you want to, right? So I think the pre-interview rejections, you can take comfort in the fact that it's not personal. Post-interview rejections are slightly different because they have met you and they do know you. And I think all I would say for that is you are competing probably against some of the best people of your level. And for whatever reason, it wasn't right for you. And I also found comfort, and again, because I'm such an egotist, but I also found comfort in, you know, if they don't want me, then I don't want them. You know, if they don't want me, then it's not the right set for me. And I need to rethink about what I want from a set and what they're looking for, because I actually didn't apply to a number of the bigger money sets in London and outside of London. And in hindsight, I would never have got in the door anyway, because it, it just wasn't me and it would never have worked. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. You know, have a look at these sets and think, can you really see yourself there? Can you really see you thriving in that environment? And for certain sets, even if they're really good and they're top ranked and they're wonderful, the answer is going to be no. And so I think it's worth remembering that if you've been in for an interview and a number of my interviews, actually, that I, so there, was, there was one interview that I got where at the end of the interview, they told me that I would not be getting pupillage there. And I sort of had to walk, I had to wait for the lift down whilst they just told me that in the room. It was awful. But, you know, in hindsight, I didn't like them at all. I got a really horrible vibe from them. I thought it was really rude of them to say that to me after the interview. They could have just emailed me like 10 seconds later and I didn't like it. And it really like upset me that they'd done this to me. And then in hindsight, it was my mum again, who was like, would you want to go there? I mean, who behaves like that? And I was like, oh yeah, it's it's a good point. I don't know why I thought it would suit me to go there. So you can find the kind of rationality in the rejections, I think. And sometimes, look, sometimes you apply somewhere you love and you don't get it. And that happens, that's part of life. And all you can do is dust yourself off and move on. I don't think there's anything else to be gained from it other than say, okay, can't win them all, right? Yeah, so my experience is slightly different from yours and that most of my rejections were post-interview and in a sense which felt really savage because it's like, oh, we didn't just reject you on paper. We met you, we assessed you and we thought, nah. Um, but also because a lot of those rejections then came on pupillage offer day, they were mitigated by the fact that I did get an offer so I could sort of go, okay, it doesn't matter, it's fine. But I had a lot of interviews where I walked out of it thinking that was absolutely awful. Pupillage interviews, even the best of them, feels like you're going into a boxing ring with people who are so much cleverer than you, just intellectually battering you over and over and over again. I mean, up until that point, most pupillage applicants probably thought that they were the cleverest person in the room, that they were really high achieving. They'd never really faced any sort of adversity or failure in a kind of academic or professional sense. So to go into a room and to realize that you're not in that position anymore, 
and that everyone there is far more accomplished and, and far more clever than you are is a real blow to the confidence. And I think I came out of a lot of interviews thinking, I'm never going to be able to do this job because how, how can I possibly measure up to those people? I know there was one interview in particular for a set that I was desperate to get into. In hindsight, actually, I think that it wouldn't have fit me, like Maddie said, after the interview process, what I had thought in the abstract might be my dream set. I thought, actually, maybe maybe that's not the place for me. Maybe it would have felt different if that was the place for me. But I think my tip is don't do a post-match analysis after a bad interview, because I went back over every single thing that I said and made myself feel so awful for not being able to think of something better. And also, a lot of the time I was wrong about whether or not it was a bad interview. The set that I got pupillage at, I don't even necessarily think was my best interview. And I was quite surprised when they offered me pupillage. And then the sets that I thought I absolutely smashed it were the ones who rejected me or put me on a reserve list or didn't quite get me to the offer. And that particular interview where I thought it was absolutely awful and I was devastated and I was walking down Tudor Street back towards Blackfriars and I was just thinking this is the end. I did end up getting a second round off that. I have no idea why, because I felt like that interview went so poorly. But I think a lot of the time, you don't know what the interviewers are thinking. And we are, quite a lot of us are inherently quite type A and perfectionist. And we go over everything that we said and, and it doesn't measure up to the standards we have for ourselves. But we don't see ourselves the way interviewers see us. And we also don't necessarily know what they're looking for. So to leave an interview and to analyze it and to go on TSR and to see what other people are doing and what they did and what emails they've got, it really is not productive at all. Go to the interview, walk out, forget about it and move on with your life and you will eventually find out what happened. But don't beat yourself up about it because you haven't got the time to and it's not going to do you any good at all. I also think that there may be something to be learned from Malvika's tactic of not having emails on your phone at the time that you're applying for pupillage because I was obsessed with checking my emails, seeing what was happening, going on the student room. I was guilty of that, not thankfully as much as others, but I did go on it, checking my emails, rechecking my emails, checking pupillage gateway every five minutes. It was not productive and it was not helpful and it made me ill. So I don't think that anyone should do that. I think you really need, like one of the key things you can learn from the pupillage interview process is resilience because you need it at the bar anyway and it's a good opportunity to get ahead of it if something bad happens or you don't know the outcome of something or you're waiting for news distract yourself do something different move on it is not helpful to go over and over and over something that you can't change it's not it's not useful it's not productive it's not efficient so I think as much as that's very easy advice for us to give now <laughs> and I know it's hard and you're desperate to know what's happening but you're never going to know until they tell you. So you just distract yourself, move forward and try and find something else to do. And I think that's why it's quite helpful to have something else going on at the time. I was in the summer holidays for most of mine, so it was a bit horrible, but find something else to do, you know, book something for yourself, distract yourself, do something nice for yourself because it is a horrible process and you are on the edge the entire time. And I think of myself as a fairly resilient person, but I found it horrible and I've no doubt that everyone finds it horrible. So just try and be nice to yourself and try and do yourself favours and don't torture yourself with your phone because it will get you nowhere. And the other thing I'd also say is if you're getting interviews at all, and if you're especially if you're getting second round interviews, then that's so good because it's a huge achievement even to get through the paper sift. And I found in final rounds that it was sort of the same pool of about 
eight people who were just at every single one of my final rounds. And it started to get a bit arbitrary that, you know, one of us would get pupillage at one place and get rejected from another. And one of us would get pupillage at the other place and get rejected from another. I read somewhere, it might've been on the pupillage and how to get it website, which is really brilliant. It's a great resource. It says something like, what do you need to get pupillage? Well, you need to have all the relevant experience. You need to be a really hard worker. You need X, Y, Z. And then after all of that, you need a dose of luck. Because a lot of it is also who happens to be on your panel that day? What question do you get asked, which just happens to fall within an area that you're really, really interested in? You know, were you on your period that day? Were you not exactly your best self? There are so many factors playing into your performance. So if you manage to get to second round, but don't quite manage to get an offer, that's such an achievement. And just remember that, please, because it is really easy to forget at that point. And towards the end, it starts to become slightly arbitrary, in my view, how sets start to pick between candidates. Also, my tip for anyone who gets to the end of the process and has to wait for decisions, I got pupillage on a reserve place and everyone that I know was on a reserve list for some chambers or another. One of my friends from university got seven pupillage offers. Harriet, I'm talking about you. And she had to choose between seven sets on offer day. She's incredibly bright, fantastic barrister. And that meant that six other people were about to get pupillage, right? Because she was going to say no to six sets. Think about it like that. You know, it's not, it's not about quality when it comes to reserve or getting a place it's because it's one person who's got all the offers and I always think about that and I think it's a very helpful way to think about it because right by the end of the process you'll know who else you're up against because it's the same people that you see each time especially if you're doing something like family which is like very small you will know who else is there and getting a reserve place is nothing to be sniffed at wait until the end of the process because on the morning if you open your emails and you've got four reserve places and you feel awful and you think you're never going to be a barrister which is exactly what happened to me then wait until the end of the day and by 6 p.m i had pupillage so it's worth remembering that getting a reserve place is the secret to getting pupillage because it's all it takes is one person to say no to that set and you're in and that does happen a lot and just something for chambers i don't know if anyone who is on a pupillage application committee listens to this podcast. I don't know who exactly I think that we are, but one of the things that I thought was really lovely is on pupillage offer day, one of the sets that I didn't get an offer at, they called me up to deliver the news to me personally to say, you know, unfortunately we've decided to give the offer to someone else and they've accepted. And I just thought that was so lovely because it's it was someone relatively senior in that chambers who was making the effort to call around all the final round candidates who didn't get pupillage. And it just makes you feel like a person because so much of the application process is really dehumanizing and you feel like a stat. But if chambers are able to do anything to kind of mitigate the trauma of getting that far and not being able to give someone pupillage, I'm sure that would be so appreciated on the part of the candidate. So good practice from that particular chambers. So Maddie, next question. What family law issues do you think the candidates this year should have on their radar? I think this is really important, especially for family, because there's a number of kind of key issues that I think over the last 10 years have developed into talking points for pupillage interviews that I had during mine and that I'm sure are features at other sets. Obviously, domestic abuse is the key issue of 2021-2022. We had ReHN last year, and I would not recommend going to a single family pupillage interview without reading ReHN in some detail, um, because it will tell you everything you need to know. And we have an episode on it as well. But domestic abuse is certainly one of the key issues. And it's certainly, it's an element of the job that 
doesn't go away. If you're working with in children law or doing any kind of child protection law, domestic abuse will be there throughout your career. So it's worth familiarizing yourself with it sooner rather than later. Sets are going to want to talk about it. You're going to need to know how to handle it and how courts handle it. It's a very important issue. Also, 6th of April 2022 is no-fault divorce day, so that's when no-fault divorce is being introduced. Again, huge talking point. I really think it's worth knowing if you're going to a family law pupillage interview, and again, this is based on nothing other than my assumption about what sets would be interested in, why no-fault divorce is important, why it took so long, and what the issues were before with fault-based divorce, because a lot of that will tell you a lot that you need to know about family law. So, for example, I'm sure Mavica has as well, but we've both done cases where the particulars of the divorce can't be agreed because one person says, I'm not agreeing to that. I don't want that on the record. I don't want that as the reason that we got divorced. And that that goes on for weeks and weeks and weeks. And they spend all this money and they have this huge conflict about what the divorce papers say when the only people who will ever see them are the two of them. That is very indicative of family law. People argue about nothing because they don't like each other and they can't agree. And I think that's a really kind of good metaphor for family law. And it's worth looking at no fault divorce and why it's important and what we can do to help people through those conflicts as law to you know understand better how family law is managed i also think i'm a big fan of rights of single fathers so unmarried fathers on birth certificates parental responsibility dna tests and role of fathers in children's lives under section 8 i think is a very important area um, and it's worth understanding the differences between unmarried fathers and mothers when it comes to how they are treated and and how their children are treated this country still has marriage as a gold standard we've talked about this before but it's it's embarrassing that we still hold marriage to such a high standard and that's worth noting as well and i'm also interested in um, or i would say that one of the other things is cohabitation rights of cohabitees so why is cohabitation less valuable than marriage and why does the law give so much more protection to people who marry than people who don't even if they're in enduring relationships with children so i think those sort of four rough areas would be where I would suggest. What do you think? Yeah, so I completely endorse what you say about domestic abuse. The family courts have been under so much scrutiny in recent years about how they treat allegations of domestic abuse. We've talked about it multiple times on this podcast, go back over our past episodes to see what cases we've been analysing. On top of ReHNN, look at FNM, which is the judgment of Mr. Justice Hayden on coercive and controlling behaviour, which is really, really good. And also read Griffiths and Tickle for example of a, a fact-finding judgment. So at first instance, I think it was by her honour judge Willis Croft, to look at how allegations of domestic abuse are dealt with in a really nuanced, really sensitive way. Also have a look at the concept of parental alienation, which is something that's being discussed more and more in family law spheres, whether it's being used as a shield to protect domestically abusive partners so you know if you accuse someone of domestic abuse and then they go oh no I'm not domestically abusive I'm just being alienated from my child I've recommended a podcast episode on BBC analysis before on parental alienation which is a really interesting one and looks at that tension and looks at the use of parental alienation experts in the family courts which is also an increasingly controversial topic about whether there are appropriately qualified experts wandering around the family courts making decisions and making well not making decisions making recommendations that can have enormous implications for families and children so have a look at that and I'm very interested in the extent of state intervention and when it becomes state overreach the very first episode that we did I analyzed a case about two overweight children who were removed into foster care and that sparked a lot of debate about whether that was state overreach and whether that 
disproportionately affected certain communities and whether that it's not the remit of the state to intervene to that extent, because I think the, the whole basis of care proceedings and the basis of public law is looking at the role of the state and the role of the individual and at what point the state becomes involved. Read the Headley judgment where he talks about, you know, the courts should be willing to tolerate extremely diverse standards of parenting. That's such a key judgment that we dish out all the time when we're acting for parents in care proceedings. I'm also interested in forced marriage. And I'm interested in the interaction of laws around things like forced marriage and FGM and whether they disproportionately affect certain minority communities and whether the statutory framework is being used as a weapon against the very communities that they are intended to protect. So I think what I'd say is look at the headlines of what everyone is talking about, but also find the topics you're really interested in and then research them inside out so that if you're asked what area of family law would you reform or tell us about a judgment that you read recently that you found really interesting. You can talk passionately about it because you've got a genuine interest in that. And I think, you know, for Maddie, it's things like surrogacy and non-traditional families. And for me, it's things like domestic abuse and transparency and forced marriage. Um, transparency, I forgot to talk about that. Transparency is a really big issue in the family courts at the moment. The transparency review just came out. The judgment in Griffiths and Tickle fed into that. There's lots of discussion about what the starting point should be in financial remedies proceedings. Read the transparency project blog because it has loads and loads of analysis there about the issue of open justice. And the other thing I'd recommend is read the speeches that various judges give in various places, particularly the president of the family division, because he gives these view from the president's chambers. And he also delivers talks that are often published on the judiciary website, where he outlines what he thinks the priorities are for him in family justice. And that gives you a good overview of what is on the agenda of those at the higher levels of the judiciary and what they want to the direction of travel that they think that we should be heading in. I can't think of anything else at this particular point in time. Maddie, anything to add? No, I think that's that's all very sensible. I think, yeah, it's worth having a think about whether there's anything that you're really passionate about. So like Malvika said, for me, it is non-traditional families. I don't like the way that non-traditional families are treated by the law. Um, and I could talk about it until the cows come home. And I've talked about it on this podcast multiple times. If it's something that you're genuinely interested in, you can see the unfairness in it and you can see why you care about it. That is the thing to focus on because that's what chambers are going to want to see from you. I also do think without blowing our own horn too much, but I think the discussions that Malvika and I sometimes have on this podcast are quite similar to the kind of discussions that you might want to be having before your pupillage interviews with friends and stuff to make sure that you understand in depth what your views are and are challenged by someone who maybe has different views to you or, or kind of understands where you're coming from. I think that would, that's a really valuable thing to do um, is find a friend or find a, a mentor who you can talk to about these issues and who will give you a different view. Often Malvika and I approach cases that we talk about on this show in a different way to each other. And that's really valuable and really helpful because that's exactly the kind of thing that you're going to be challenged on when you get into your interview. So that if you can find a, a resource like that, I think that's really, really helpful as well. Right, I'm going to ask one more question and then we're going to move on to book podcast talk recommendations and tweet of the week, which is what kind of advocacy exercises did you come across and do you have any tips on how to deal with them? Yes, so I had a couple, there was a couple of sort of formats of advocacy exercise when I was doing my pupillage interviews. The first was you were given a topic when you arrived and sort of 10 minutes to prep it. So I think I did one about Brexit. I was applying in 2016, just before the Brexit day so it was basically Brexit was the issue of the day and you are given a sort of 
motion or, or you know, argument when you arrive and you're given sort of 10, 15 minutes to read it and have a think about what you want to say. And then you go in and you argue for or against it. That's quite a common one. The other one is, of course, you get sent something before. So I had one where I was sent a kind of almost like a brief, I would say a very short brief about a child who was subject of, of his parents' conflict who wanted to spend time with him. And they wanted me to give them five reasons why this child should spend more time with X than Y. But that was sent to me a couple of weeks in advance, I think. So it was meant to be, you know, law and all of that kind of thing that was meant to be properly prepared. If they give you it before, I think the expectation is that you will research it properly and use the law. If they give you it before you walk in, the expectation is, of course, that you haven't done that. So I think it's worth remembering what the expectation is um, for advocacy exercises. But those are the two main formats that I saw. It was either a kind of general argument about a proposition or it was a specific family law case that they wanted you to make sometimes and I've had a couple of kind of anecdotal stories of this they'll say to you you know why do you think that Mr Justice X was wrong in this case when he decided this or why do you think that Mr Justice Y was right to make this particular decision for this family and those are quite helpful as well because I think if you're arguing against established law that's quite a skill as well and being able to think critically about what judges have already said and why they might be wrong and you have to do that a lot in practice as well as tell judges that they're wrong. So it's worth getting used to it. But yeah, I think the best thing to do is work out what they're expecting of you. Are they expecting you to have read all the law? Are they expecting you to have looked at all the cases around this issue? Or are they expecting you to come up with an argument in a short amount of time that's powerful and persuasive? Because those two things are quite different. There's a difference between a sort of reasoned, researched argument based on law and fact and a kind of impassioned speech that you come up with in 10 minutes. Both of them are areas of my practice I must admit but yeah I think that's probably the two main areas I've seen what about you what else did you have I had the sometimes you turn up and they give you a, a non-legal issue I think this was at your set Maddie and they um, would just give me a topic and a couple of things to read and then they'd go in and go argue for one side and then argue for another side so I think I was asked should North Korea have nuclear weapons and so get used to reading the headlines and think not only about all the arguments in support of what you think, but also all the arguments that can be leveled against you, because you will often be advocating for things that you don't particularly believe in and that you don't think are right, but you're going to have to do it to the best of your abilities. So get used to that. Also, if you're not a non-law student or don't have a legal background, get used to reading cases. So get on Bailey and start reading cases and get used to sifting the wheat from the chaff because you're going to have a short amount of time to read quite a chunky bit of text sometimes. And a lot of it's irrelevant and you just need to get to the key legal points. And sometimes they're very helpfully marked and it says something like the three points that I would make in respect to this. And then you just have to regurgitate it, but get used to sort of drilling down to the main bits and to get rid of all the irrelevant stuff, because that's a skill that you have to use every day as a barrister is you'll get a thousand pages the day before, but you will not have time to read all thousand pages. And I think it just the rule of three is quite helpful is whenever you're trying to structure arguments, just think of your three best points and hammer those home rather than trying to cover everything that you possibly can. Don't make bad points. Don't make bad points for the sake of making points. I'm also notoriously guilty of talking too quickly. And I'm, I'm naturally the sort of person who speaks quite quickly, but it's, I seem to just get really, really fast in interviews. And my feedback constantly, even during advocacy courses and things now in practice, is speak slower. So I sometimes, when I'm in court, have a post-it note, just go slow down. And just, I think the impact of what you're saying 
is so much better when you do slow down. Anything else? I think at the money sets that I went to, the second rounds tended to be problem questions where you really do have the time to think about the main principles in matrimonial finance. So, you know, start reading your Millers, your McFarlane's, your White and White and all that, White and Vince, all those sorts of cases, you know, have them on your radar. And you obviously won't need to know everything inside out, but if you've been given the time in advance to prepare, then you should try and prepare to the best of your ability because other candidates will be. So don't half-ass it. I think that's probably the, the main sorts of things I had. Yeah, I completely agree. Slow down, breathe, take your time. It's never as long as you think it is if there's a pause. And also remember that these are barristers who are doing this in the midst of a very busy practice and they often just want to know that you know what you're talking about and they just want to not have to worry about you. And I think that's probably worth remembering as well. These aren't recruitment specialists. There's no HR at the bar. Don't we bloody know it. But they are just barristers who want to see if you can do the job. Um, and so the best you can do for yourself is just showcase that you, you understand that that's the case and that you can do the job and you can do it well. Also, this isn't strictly about advocacy exercises, but I forgot to mention it before. At a lot of first rounds, you will get competency questions about your CV. If you've put something on your CV, first of all, do not lie, do not exaggerate, because you will get caught out. I'm, you know, I can't believe I even have to say this, but it happens. But if you do put something on your CV, make sure you know it inside out. So if you say, I did this moot, look back at your moot and see what the legal issues were and what you were arguing about, because they may ask you about that. If you say that I wrote an essay for this essay competition that won a prize, go back, read your essay and go over the law that you address then because it may be a you know icebreaker or a starting point for conversation. So don't just know everything on a surface level. Look at each experience and everything that you refer to and know it inside out so that you're able to have a conversation about it if asked. Yeah, and closing tip is reread your application before you go to the interview because there's nothing worse than confusing one set with another or putting something in your application that you don't then mention an interview. So just before you go to your interview, reread your app, your paper application, because that's what they'll have in front of them when you enter the room. Yeah. And um, just on Maddie's thing of know your set, so important, because if they ask you why this set and you go to a predominantly care set and go, I really want to do international child abduction, which maybe one person in that whole set has developed a practice in, it reflects really poorly on you. And actually, it is quite difficult information to get because so many chambers put that they are specialists in absolutely every area of law on their website. And that's when your research comes into play. Contact barristers at those chambers and say, I'm, I'm interested in knowing what it's like to practice as a junior barrister at that chambers. Would you be able to tell me a few things about, you know, how um, chambers deals with practice development, what kind of direction chambers is interested in heading in, um, what kind of work a junior barrister is generally going to have as their bread and butter. That is how you find out what that chambers actually does, which you might not be able to see through the chambers puff on their website. So know your set, as Maddie said, and do the research to find out about it. Don't just rely on what's on their website or what's on Twitter, because that's predominantly directed at clients rather than pupillage applicants. Okay. That's enough on pupillage applications, I think, Maddie. Of course, if anyone has any questions, um, we have public Twitters, our um, email addresses are on our Chambers website. If you want to get in touch with us, DM us, send us a message on LinkedIn, send us an email. And you know, if we have time, we're more than happy to speak to people. One thing that does get my goat though, and I'm gonna say this for anyone who does try and get in touch with us, do not ask us to answer the questions on an application form for you. So if it says something like, you know, 
what do you think are the main issues facing the family bar at the moment? Very clearly, you've probably got that in an application form somewhere. We're not going to tell you the answer to it. We're not going to do the thinking for you, but we are more than happy to help you with general advice. But it really doesn't endear people to us and it won't endear you to anyone, anyone else at the family bar who you're asking that question to or, you know, what do you think makes a good barrister? <laughs> you should be thinking yeah. about those sorts of things yourself. We're not going to tell you that. Okay. Also, you know, that's not going to help you if, if we were to give you the answers to those questions. You've got to do the work because you're going to have to do the work when you're in pupillage. So you might as well get used to it now. It doesn't get any easier, by the way. You're going to keep having to read cases and keep having to listen to stuff and keep having to work when you become a barrister. So you might as well start now. Getting answers from someone else is going to do you no good at all. Right. But podcast talk recommendations, Maddie. Oh, I'm so excited to talk about this because I found the most insane podcast ever. It's called Twin Flames. Oh, I have this on my list. I haven't oh listened my God. to it yet. I can't recommend it enough. It is wild. So it's it's from Wondery, who do who are really good at podcasts, actually, the way they structure them and their whole thing is really good. Any Wondery podcast I'd recommend. But this particular one is fascinating. It's about a couple. It's I'm sort of halfway through. It hasn't finished yet. It's about a couple who have a business where they support people who are in love with people that they think are their twin flames you know their soulmates their matches and basically convince them that they'll eventually be together and this is like people who are in love with people who are married to someone else people who have asked them not to contact them there's one who's got a restraining order against her because she can't stop contacting the man that she thinks is her twin flame and these two people the couple in charge of it like encourage these people and charge them loads of money for these seminars to try and you know be, them to be in love with their twin flames it's horrendous it's one of the saddest things I've ever heard they're clearly exploiting very vulnerable very sad people and it's shocking but the way that they've done it and the way that they sort of talk to these people is really interesting and I also think as a family barrister a couple of issues come up so there's obviously it's American but there is um an issue about restraining orders and harassment in it which I thought was quite interesting and there's also an issue of kind of you know genuine human emotion and genuine human relationships and at what point do you have to be realistic about those and at what point do you have to sort of stop pursuing someone who's not interested in you it's really really interesting and I think for anyone and I've talked about this I think before for anyone who's interested in kind of human relationships and romantic relationships and friendships and kind of cultish exploitation of those feelings it's really worth a listen I, I really can't recommend it enough it's really good no, it is on my list. I will start listening to it today because I'm always looking for a good podcast recommendation. I'm running a little bit dry at the moment. I feel like I've finished Apple Podcasts. I feel like there's nothing left. Um, my podcast recommendation is one that I listened to on holiday and was absolutely obsessed with because I went to Costa Rica a couple of weeks ago. I spent a lot of time on buses between various places and I was listening to this podcast obsessively. And it's called Bed of Lies and it's a Telegraph podcast. And I've only just realized that actually what I listened to was season two. Season one, I haven't listened to. So I'm going to look at that because apparently it's about the undercover policing scandal, where lots of undercover police officers infiltrated the lives of women who were activists and things like that and had relationships with them and, and manipulated them and romanced them. And it was extremely, extremely uncomfortable. And the undercover policing inquiry is underway. So I'm going to listen to that. But Season two, which is what I listened to, is about the infected blood inquiry, which I kind of vaguely knew about because I knew a couple of people who had paralegaled on the infected blood inquiry, but I didn't really know the ins and outs of it. And it is heartbreaking and fascinating. And the journalist who is hosting it, she speaks to not only those who have suffered as a result of the infected blood inquiry, uh, sorry, the infected blood scandal, 
just for those who don't know anything about it, it's effectively about how infected blood products were provided to vulnerable people, particularly haemophiliacs. And it turned out that a lot of them contracted HIV and hep C from those products. And it transpired much later that there was absolutely no vetting process um, for that blood being prepared and put into those products and then being provided to extremely vulnerable people. Um, and the infected blood inquiry is one of the, they explore the infected blood inquiry, but they talk to not only people who've suffered, but also doctors who had been prescribing those products. They speak to pharma whistleblowers who became aware of what was going on. They speak to lawyers who represent those who are now bringing actions. And it is super, super interesting, really, really sad. And I ended up in a bit of a black hole on the internet afterwards reading the oral evidence of people who had given evidence to the infected blood inquiry. That website is, is live and you can read the evidence that every single person gave to that inquiry, which is, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of evidence. But if you are interested in that, please do have a listen to that podcast. And I'm going to listen to season one in the meantime. Yeah, it's really interesting, actually. The infected blood inquiry is ongoing. I've got a couple of friends who work there, actually, and it's a upsetting, very distressing story and definitely worth knowing about for pupillage season. Tweet of the week. My tweet of the week, I think, is, I don't know whether we've talked about it on the podcast before, you and I have talked about this before. It's from Sebastian Burrows, who's a friend of the show, solicitor, um, at Law Burrows. And he has tweeted, watching A&E After Dark on Channel 5 TV and disappointed to hear the narrator talk about committing suicide. People commit murder and robbery because they're crimes. Suicide isn't a crime. Ingrained, outdated language is easy to overlook, but important to change. And I think this is something that I think about quite a lot because I am guilty of sometimes saying committing suicide. I try and say died by suicide as much as I can. And that's where I try to, when I address judges and things, I, I, I say died by suicide. But it's something that I think a lot of people don't think about. I don't think we should be saying commit suicide anymore for those exact reasons. Um, and it is something that unfortunately we do have to talk about. So worth remembering that lazy language really can have an impact if you talk about people who have died by suicide in that way it can really have an effect on people yeah completely agree it's something that's very close to my heart obviously as someone who did try to kill themselves and it's you know language around suicide is something I think about quite a lot and I think for anyone who has attempted to die by suicide or who has there's a lot of guilt wrapped up in it because certainly in the aftermath of my attempt I was just thinking, oh, I'm so selfish and it, you know, I'm the worst person ever and I can't believe that I would have done that to the people around me. And I think there's a lot of guilt and shame wrapped up in that, which people feed into because they'll say that someone who died by suicide was selfish and they weren't thinking about the people around them. And that's really unhelpful and it doesn't help to destigmatize suicide or mental ill health. So yeah, completely endorse that. Please be careful with the language that you use. We will try and call it out wherever we can appropriately. My tweet of the week is from my friend Josh Hitchens, who tweeted, just reading a brief, it is addressed, dear Josh, rather than to my clerk, says, please will you, rather than counsel is instructed to, and says I, rather than instructing solicitors. Any sensible reason this isn't the norm? Now, for those who aren't yet practitioners, you may not understand what that was all about, but it's so true that we seem to speak in the third person <laughs> as barristers and we will get briefs from instructing solicitors going counsel is briefed instructing solicitors would advise counsel and i'm like actually i don't understand why they just don't go i just wanted to let you know that the client said this rather than instructing solicitors would like to make counsel aware that the client has said this and i do it in my attendance notes as well i i say you know i just wanted to inform my instructing solicitor and i'm like why don't i just say just to let you know 
I have no idea why we do that. It's one of those antiquated things that actually we don't need to do at all. And the pomp and circumstance of it is probably a little bit self-indulgent and there's no good reason to continue doing it. So I'm going to try, certainly on my attendance notes, to not do that and to just talk like a normal person. Yeah, I completely agree. There's no reason why we can't do that. And it's very barristerial. And it's one of those things I don't like about the bar. When we talk about accessibility, language matters because people are intimidated by that kind of language and there is no good reason for us to do it. So it's worth remembering that people who are looking at us at the bar need to feel like we're being reflective of society. And that kind of language is just so outdated and silly. There's no reason for us to keep doing it. Um, and I would certainly implore solicitors to, to speak to us like normal people rather than, you know, some sort of antiquated Dickensian figure. Right. That's that on that. That is the end of our pupilage application special to everyone who is applying, going through the process right now. We wish you the best of luck. You are fantastic and remember that. And this is just a job amongst many other jobs. So keep a sense of perspective, which I know is really difficult to do during pupillage application season when it seems like the be all and end all to get a pupillage offer. Yeah, best of luck to everyone. You are so much more than the bar's opinion of you. Please remember that. So whether you are successful this year or not, it is not a stain on your character either way and you will be successful at whatever you go on to do so please remember that and as ever me and Malvika are always available to have a chat if you've got any questions for us please do tweet us or email us and and ask us anything that you want to outside of obvious answers to pupillage application questions which we will not entertain okay that's it for now and we'll see you all in a fortnight bye